We're doing a series called Sanctifying the Ordinary. And in essence, if you read 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, uh, whatever you do, do all things. Whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. And we're just hitting on a series in January where we're trying to look at just everyday things that we can do for the glory of God. And so this week we're looking at Sanctifying the Ordinary. And the topic is work. Uh, and so we're turning to Genesis 1. So keep your Bible open to Genesis 1. We'll do a bit of flicking here and there, but try and primarily stay in Genesis in the early chapters. I was thinking during the week about how we view an experience and how our view of an experience is, is vital, is important, and how that affects how we respond to this experience. So how you view an experience is important. So I'll give you a bit of an everyday run-of-the-mill example. So let's say... Uh, you and I are both sitting in Sydney traffic and it is going absolutely nowhere. That's the experience. But we might come into that experience with a different view. So you might view it as a, as a delight. It is a treat to be stuck in Sydney traffic at that moment because you were on your way to the dentist to have a wisdom tooth pulled out. And so at that point, that experience, because of your view... If that experience, it's a delight and you respond with joy when you are stuck in traffic and might miss the set appointment. But if I am, am in the same traffic in a car exactly in line with you and I am actually on the way to a, something, a really important job meeting, I can be in the same experience, the same situation, the same circumstance, but because of my view of that experience, I'm grumpy, I'm tested, I really want to be there. Same experience. We're both in the same traffic. You're buzzing and smiling and whistling tunes. And I'm angry. I'm banging the the dashboard. I'm tempted. I'm frustrated. So how you view an experience is vital, is important, and will greatly affect how you then respond. So I wonder, how do you view the experience of work? How do you view your experience of work? I think... Most of us, or many of us, are tempted to view work kind of like the movie Groundhog Day. And you may have seen or heard about the movie Groundhog Day. It's about 20 years old now. And it was an actor called Bill Murray who played a, a weatherman, an egocentric weatherman, who basically lived for himself. And the plot of the story is basically that this weatherman has to go and report about an event called Groundhog Day. And he's, he's grumpy, he doesn't really, really want to do it, he doesn't want to uh, engage, or it doesn't bring him any joy at all to be reporting about the Groundhog Day. At the end of the day, he, he then uh, has finished his work, he goes and stays in a hotel, uh, only to then wake up to discover that he's actually now repeating the exact same day. And that he has to go through the same motions, again, of reporting on the same thing that he doesn't find enjoyable at all. And the movie, movie progresses where Phil, this weatherman, is stuck in this time loop living the same thing over and over and over again. It gets very monotonous and boring and actually really tempts him. It frustrates him to do the same thing over and over again. What is the point of this? I'm gaining nothing in this to do the same thing over and over again. I think many of us will take that view that Phil had a Groundhog Day into work, that it's this, this time loop. I know that at times in my work I was tempted in that, and that I would, uh, we lived just off Penn Hills Road, and I had smooth sailing for about two streets until I was on Penner Road. And then I was stuck. And it can be so tempting to be doing that every day, and to view work then as just this monotonous, endless relentless, necessary evil. We might view work as something that we just have to do so that we can then do what we want to do. Something that we do, it's just a means so that I can then enjoy pleasure and leisure. It's just a way to gain, to, to find profit just so that I might gain or enjoy something else, not the work. I view work... It's just a boring, monotonous thing to then achieve what I really want. And I think that can be how we attempt to view work. I wonder, is that how God would have us view work? If there's a big question I really want to ask this morning, the question in essence is, how does God 
want us to view our work? How would God want us to view work? I'm going to walk through the Bible and try and wrestle with what might be a biblical understanding of work. And so if you're taking notes, there'll be three points. The first point is work and Eden. The second point is work and the fall. And then the third and final point is work and the gospel. So work and Eden, work and the fall, work and the gospel. Three points as we try and walk through to find a biblical understanding to answer the question, how would God want us to view our work? But I need help in this. Our prayer equals dependence, and I want to be completely dependent on God. So would you join me? Let's pray. Let's seek God and depend on Him this morning. You are the light for our feet. Lord, you are the truth that set us free. May the truth be proclaimed this morning. May there be light for our feet that guides us as we walk through your word, your spoken word. Would you reveal what is before us? Would you bring illumination? Would you bring answers and clarity? Would you speak clearly to us? as we seek to wrestle with this question of work, Lord. Amen. So the first point that we're looking at is work and Eden. As we try and wrestle and answer this question, how would God have us view work? So we want to have our Bibles open to Genesis 1. And the first thing I want us to look at is how that work existed in a sinless world. How work is certainly not a product of sin. It existed in a sinless world. Look with me at Genesis 1. I'm actually just going to read a little bit of Genesis 1, starting from the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light... And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants, yielding seed, according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And of course it progresses. I could keep going, but I just want to pause there if we can that I can just draw your attention to a few things that is happening. Firstly, we see a perfect sinless being working. We see the almighty, powerful God, the omnipotent one who takes nothing and he creates, who separates who who brings forth out of nothing and sprouts seeds and trees. And we see, if you like, order created out of chaos. There is this structure here that we're given here too, that that the way God works, on on day one, he creates uh, light and darkness, and then on day four, he then fills in, brings and formulates further, progresses the creation, if you like, on day four, adding to the sky 
uh, to light and darkness, the, the sun for the light and the moon and the stars for the darkness. Or day two, he, he separates the, the waters and the sky. And then on day five, he fills in, he progresses, he furthers the creation. On day five, what he did on day two, by filling in the waters with teeming with, with animals within the waters, so fish and, and, and water creatures. And the sky teeming with sky creatures, with birds that would fill the sky. And then on day three, he creates the land and, and, and the tree and the vegetation. And, and then on day six, he then further progresses his creation, furthering the creation, if you like, by uh, uh, creatures, animals, humans. There's this order out of chaos. There's this creating. There's this work. God is working. And I want, to, I want you to see that. I want to pause and, and emphasize that, that God works. That God, the holy, perfect being, works. Work is not sinful. Work is not evil. For God himself works. God himself creates and makes. Here's something radical. As you progress through the Bible, you'll read in Ephesians 5.1 that we're actually called to be imitators of God. That we are called to be imitators of God. And so you might find throughout the Bible that we are called to reflect the moral character of God. That just as the Heavenly Father forgives, so we ought to forgive. As God is faithful, you are called to be faithful. Be holy as your Heavenly Father is holy. You are called to be imitators of God. And here we read in Genesis 1, God worked. God worked. That's significant. Be imitators of God, the God who works. So what does that look like? How do we flesh that out a little bit further? Well, I think it's, it's helpful to, to see that God creates, that God takes things and further progresses them, and that we can actually imitate God in that. Have you thought about that? That you and I can can create, that we can, uh, for example, if you're a school teacher, you can take some, a student who has no knowledge of maths and you can give them something that did not exist before. You can, if, if like, further them, add, create. Perhaps it's the, the, the man who works on the road, the man or woman who, who is building safe roads for us, who is creating for us a good road that we can drive safely up and down the highway. We're creating, we're furthering for the good of others within creation. We can imitate God in the way that we create. And there is such glory to God in the way that we can do that. I think just as God found delight in his creation, as we looked at it, at the end of each day, he stood back and said, it is good. And there's joy and delight in creating. So we too, as we imitate God, can find joy and delight in making, in separating, in creating, in taking order out of chaos. There can be delight in that. And I think we've lost something of that. I think we've lost something of the awe of of the fact that God is at work in and through us creating things. He is still creating today, if you like, through us. During the week, I heard an illustration from a man called Wayne Grudem that, that threw out the, the hypothetical, what if, what if Adam and Eve could be transported in a time capsule to, to today? If somehow we could bring Adam and Eve to be here, present with us in this room, what if? And we would quickly clothe them, and then we would bring them down the front, and we would have a chat to Adam and Eve. Can you imagine that? And I imagine Adam would look at me and I'd be here with my clothes on and I'd just have a sip of water. And I imagine Adam would be like, Mark, what is that? What is that? Well, well, Adam, it's a cup of water. A cup of water. But, But don't you have to go down to the stream to have water, to have a drink of water? 
What is this thing that is holding the water? Well, Adam, it's, it's, a, it's a cup. It's plastic. Plastic? How did you get plastic? Well, Adam, I, I, God gave us this ability and this creativity, this desire to study our land, our world, and that we found this oozy, goozy black stuff in the land. And as we messed around and played around with it, we discovered that we could actually make this wonderful clear stuff that we could use to hold things. And so we can hold water. You could, you could, you could make that? God gave you the ability and the wisdom to get things out of the ground and make a cup so that you can hold water? Wow. Praise God. Praise God. Glory to God that you can create things like that. What is, what is this? What, are they stars? <laughs> no, Adam, they're not stars. They're lights. We call them lights. Wow. How did that work? Well, Adam, there's this, there's this man who messed around with electricity. And, and uh, it's a long story I can tell you about. Thomas Edison, I can tell you a long story about him. But, but in essence, yeah, again, we just looked at the land, studied what we have, and with the ability and the wisdom that God gave us, we could create things so that the quality of life is furthered and progressed. Wow. Isn't God amazing? Isn't God wonderful that he gave you all this ability and and all the materials that you can create? Like, glory to God that you can create. Isn't it good? And I imagine if Adam could be here today, he would look at the way that we have progressed and furthered in the quality of our living and look at all the things that have been created and there would be that, that delight and joy that you read God has in creation. God would step back and say that it is good. And I think we've lost the awe of all that we have and all that, that we've created that we can step back in our work and look at the things that have been created and progressed, that there's been order out of chaos, to step back and go, wow, glory to God that that can happen. For me, when I was working as a high school teacher and I was a PE teacher, and to to be able to take a, a group of 30 students, all with mixed and different varied capabilities, and to bring order out of that chaos even, uh, and to be able to then teach them uh, to acquire a new skill in the sport. To be able to do that is incredible, really. And, and to stop and step back and go, wow, praise God that we can do that. What joy there is in my work to have been able to do that. Again, like I said before, maybe it's the man who makes a road and, and can further and progress creation in that sense that we can actually go further within our country safely. Wow. Praise God that we can create roads and progress our creation in that way. I think a, a, a great um, illustration of this is Alex Shaw, who epitomizes this for me. Alex Shaw is a man in our church. Is he here? He's out the back looking after his little boy. Alex Shaw is a, is a man who he works as a landscape, landscaper and in essence takes order out of chaos of people's gardens and, and finds such joy. I mean, you just have to talk to him. We were sitting around at breakfast yesterday and Brendo asked him just a couple of little questions. It was probably questions about soil or something. And the, the joy that he gets... In, in talking about his work, the joy that he gets in creating beauty in someone's garden, that they might take pleasure and enjoy being within their garden. The joy of being able to create, well, that's a great example of someone imitating God who works hard, imitating God in creating and making and furthering and separating and, and finding joy in that and glorifying God in the gifts that he's given to be able to do that. I think that the other way that we can imitate God is that we can add value. See, God, when he made things, he was adding value. He took nothing and made something. And we too, if you like, as we work, we can actually imitate God that, the way that we can take something and add its value. So, so picture the lady who takes $3 worth of material, $3 worth of material, and maybe she then works and makes a T-shirt that she can then sell for $13. 
She has added value to our world. What was $3 has become $13 because of her work. There is value added. We can imitate God as we look and view our work in the way that we are adding value to our world. Maybe it's the, it's, again, it's the teacher who is progressing and adding the value of knowledge, imparting knowledge to a student. Maybe it's the, the journalist who is uh, reporting faithfully truths that will then affect and, uh, the way that people then live. Perhaps it's reporting on uh, the safety procedures during the bushfire season and that because of the value, because of the reporting, there is value added in the way that people can then live their lives in light of what was reported. We can imitate God in our work in the way that we create, find delight in our creation and add value. The second thing as we walk through looking Genesis Genesis 1, uh, if you look further on with me, Genesis 1, and we'll look at uh, verse 26. Then God said... Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And if you jump ahead with me, to chapter 2 where we read, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. So just as we ought to see that God works, we now see that as Genesis progresses a bit further, as we look at work and Eden, we find that not only does God, the perfect almighty being himself, work, he then commissions us to work. He makes a beautiful garden and places Adam and Eve in the garden and commissions us, commissions them to work the garden. And some of the words there are to have dominion over it, to keep it and to work it, to be responsible for it, to subdue it. There's this expectation, if you like, of achievement within the garden, to further it, to just as God himself uh, furthered creation and progressed creation, that, that we have been commissioned by God to, as God now works through us within creation, that we might accomplish great things in creation, to further it for the good of all of creation. Theologians call this the cultural mandate, that we are to, if you like, create wonderful culture. Have you ever thought about that? What if none of us worked? What if tomorrow... Monday begins and no one works. So the baker stops making his bread. The farmer stops milking his cows. The, the IT guy stops solving everyone's problems. The schools shut down. The roads are not repaired. It wouldn't take long, would it, that all of a sudden you would see that actually now we're living in a wilderness. Actually, without work... Everything is like a chaotic. It's like a wilderness. What is the difference between a wilderness and culture? Well, it's work. Good work. Work that is done for the good of our neighbours. And so God commissions us to work for him, for the good of others, for the furtherance of creation, to create good culture. So we are commissioned by God. And this is a wonderful thing. This, this 
if you like, highlights for us that we do not work for our employer. Though we do, the ultimate boss is God. As you look through the Bible, we are called to be ambassadors for Christ. We are called to represent God in the way that we go to the workplace. That yes, we work for our boss, but our ultimate authority is far greater. That we ought to be ambassadors in our workplace for the Almighty. Therefore, we are always on display and this ought to greatly affect the way we work. If you look at Proverbs, there is much to be said about the ethics of how you work. That you ought not to be a sluggard or lazy because you work for God. That you ought not to be unethical because you work for God. He is the one who has commissioned you in your work. He is the ultimate authority in your life. That you would live and work for Him. And the way that you work ought to make much of Him. I've sort of thought about it in some ways just as I pondered this last night, that in some ways that your life might be to some degree, like more like a window than a painting. See, a painting is placed on a wall so that we would stop and look directly at the painting. We're not trying to look behind the painting. We want to, we want to take all in, in that we can of the painting and, and, and enjoy the painting. Whereas a window serves a completely different purpose. We don't stop and look at the frame. We don't try and study the glass. The window's purpose is actually to show what is on the other side, to look through the window, that we might see what is behind the window. You ought to be living as ambassadors, that the way you live, the way you work, would be more like a window than a painting, that the way you work would act as a window, that people don't stop and look at your life, but stop and look at your life so they might see through it and see an almighty God that you serve that you would be working for God as ambassadors in your workplace. So here, as we read in 1, 26, as we read in 2, verse 7, that you are placed there by God to work, to cultivate, to go and accomplish and be commissioned by God to further for the good of others. This has implications too, I think, for us as we think about that truth that God is actually working through you. Have you pondered that? Martin Luther thought a lot about this and thought deeply about this. As he was doing a sermon and and, um, studying Psalm 145, I'll go there quickly. As he he was looking at Psalm 145 and he came to verse 15, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. And he walked a little bit further into Psalm 147 And in verse 13, For he strengthens the bars of your gates and he blesses your children within you. So the first picture we have is that God feeds us all. And the second picture we have is that God protects us. Now, Luther, as he was studying those Psalms, uh, noticed and observed that the way that God feeds you is actually by using people who then work the land, who then raise up cattle so that then their work uh, might allow that cattle to be a provision for food or that that cattle, the dairy cows, might be a provision for milk or the, the poultry and the way that the chickens are looked after might be a provision for us in different means that we might be provided food. It's work. God uses people and their work. So God feeds us is what the psalmist says. But the means of you being provided by God is people's work. In Psalm 147, the means of being protected, the strengthening, the bars for a city is people's work. Someone built that city, the gates that would be security. Someone built the house that protects you from all the weather. God looks after you. God is providing for you. And he does that through people's work. And I think, again, so easily we overlook this and we look at it from a human level and we appreciate what humans are doing in their work. But glory to God. Glory to God in the way that he looks after us and provides for us through people's work. So God works and work is good. And then God commissions us to go on and do good work. 
as we ponder the question, how should we view work? I think Genesis has much to say about that, that we should view it as certainly not something that is evil because God himself worked. We should see that the way that God worked ought to be an example that we can then imitate him, that we too can create, that we too can delight, that we too can add value. And that we might see ourselves as one who works for God, that he be my ultimate boss, that I am commissioned by him to work for others, to love my neighbour in the way that I work, that my job might be a a means to loving my neighbour. Now, you might ask a question, is my job actually a job that loves my neighbour? There are certainly certain jobs that I would consider perhaps not. I, I myself personally would struggle to work uh, for a company that makes cigarettes, for example. Uh, and, and I would ask and wrestle with the question, is that a, a way of loving my neighbour in my job? If it's a, uh, is it really loving my neighbour to work in that workforce? So work is good and we can imitate God. Work in Eden. Work and the fall. As we progress through the Bible, as we try and wrestle with how we ought to view work, how does God want us to view work? Work and the fall. So we need to view work as good, absolutely, but yet we turn the page in Genesis 1 and 2 and we see that something goes wrong in God's wonderful, beautiful creation where work is great, where work is a delight and it is good, We see something happen. Uh, So we read in Genesis 2. I'm going to read verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You must surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God is a good God. God is a loving God. And here he gives a command. Eat anything, eat everything except the one. Why that tree? Well, we could wrestle and, and, and ponder that mystery for hours. Don't know. Why the command, though? Well, God is a good God. And God is calling Adam and Eve to actually delight in obeying Him. Many times I've, I've sat down with my children, and my five-year-old in particular, and, and I might give her a command and she might not fully comprehend it or understand, but I say to Atali, you know Daddy loves you. And because of that, you can trust me and do it anyway and delight in that you have a dad who loves you. You might not understand why not to do that, but you can delight in obeying Dad and enjoying the, the, the obedience of obeying the one who loves you so deeply. What if the command that I gave to Talitha, my five-year-old, what if my command to her was Talitha? Uh, you, you cannot, cannot drive my car. What if that was a command? It's a good command. From her perspective, she wants to do whatever she can. She wants to do it. But it's something that is good for her. And she, in that moment, can actually just delight in saying, okay, Dad, I, trust you. I don't understand. I want to do this, but I, but I want to obey you more. That's what I want. And it shows her heart that she would love me in that way. And so God says, don't touch don't take of, what was it exactly? Uh, you shall surely, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it you will surely die. So do not eat of it. And then we find in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve are tempted in this. God has given them a good word. And as we read through Genesis 3, they actually begin to doubt God's word. And then they begin to distort God's word. They doubt it. Will will you really die? Then they distort it. Surely God didn't say that. And, And then Eve gives this answer that God said, do not eat of this and don't even touch it. They distort God's word. Don't eat the fruit and don't even touch it. They add to God's word. And then they progress in their doubting of God's word that they would distrust God altogether and think that they would know best. To think that their will would be uh, higher than God's will. And while God has said don't do something, they find themselves doing the very thing he said not to do. 
And, the, and as you read through Genesis 3, you find that what they are told would happen is that they would become like God. If they do this, they would become like God. If they disobey God, they would become like Him. In essence, what has been said there is if, if you disobey God, in essence, you're saying that you are a competitive will, that not God's will, your will, and they're equals in your sight. That you might place your will in competition competing for supremacy with the will of God. Do they become like God? In that sense, they become like God. Are they like Him in their attributes and characteristics? No. Are they like Him in the sense that they believe that their will is supreme? Yes, because they now follow their will. And here's what's radical. We see that this this decision to reject God as the ultimate authority and place themselves as the ultimate supreme authority in competition to the one who is truly God has huge implications, ramifications for all of life. See, just as, just as Talitha, a car is not designed for my five-year-old to drive, a car is great when it's used properly, used it for the purpose that it was designed to be used. And so if my five-year-old gets in and drives it, it's not going to be good. It's not going to go well. That's not the intention of it that the car was made for. And so just as when God made this world, it's good, it is beautiful when God is the supreme authority. When God is on the throne, everything is wonderful and beautiful. But when we dethrone God... Well, it wasn't designed to have us on the throne making and calling the shots. And this decision affects everything. I once worked uh, as a gardener and I was working on a house on the northern suburbs up near Northbridge and there was a big fern tree that I was trying to remove and I ended up with fern hair absolutely everywhere. The more I worked on this, trying to remove the ferns out of this property, the more fern hair just seemed to be everywhere, in my hair. Uh, I was discovering it, therefore, in my bed. As much as I showered and tried to get it off, this itchiness of the fern hair was everywhere and affecting everything. In the same way, we find that the decision to dethrone God then goes on to affect everything. And, of course, therefore, by implications, it affects work. So that because they have said no to God and His will, work is affected. And we find this specifically in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, and we're going to read from verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken and for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Work does not escape the effect of sin. Work is affected by sin. By the fact that we now have pitted ourselves as as competing for supreme authority with God, that has implications for the way that we work. So whilst work is good, and whilst God has commissioned us to work for Him, there are implications because we now live in a world that is affected and corrupted by sin, that all of life has been affected and so is your workplace. Here's a few ways that I was thinking about the way that work is affected. We will be tempted to work, not for God, but for me. That the DNA of me now is to to work, not for the supreme authority, but for the one that I sometimes slip into thinking that I'm the supreme authority. And I'll be tempted to make work all about me. To make myself the painting on the wall that I want everyone to see how good I am. That I want to, if someone else looks good and does something great, I am bitter and jealous because I I want them to look at me that I would see work even in light of the way that I'd be tempted to perhaps view work just as a means that I might get stuff. And so if I can work in a way that's lazy but still get stuff, I'll do that because it's about me. It can be a temptation to, to make it all about me. You might know all too well that temptation to view work 
as if it's all about me. But the Bible is clear in Genesis 1, no, no, work and all of your life, it's about God and His glory. He is the authority. Secondly, and in line with that, to flesh that out further, I think to ponder that, that you live for gain, that you would work for gain, is actually a, a, a dangerous way to work. Ponder this. The, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read quickly. Ecclesiastes 1. Verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Another way to say this word vanity is to say meaningless or vapor. It's like something that if you try and grab the breath on a cold morning when you breathe out and you try and grab it, it's elusive, it's hard, you, it's pointless. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity, all is vanity. What does man gain? What is the profit... What is the gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And he goes on to ponder different situations, different circumstances. What is the gain? What is the profit? It's the language of work, isn't it? And it's further expounded in chapter 2, in chapter 2, verse 24. He then comes to this conclusion that there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil, to find enjoyment in his toil, This also I saw, this is from the hand of God. And I think as I've wrestled with this and I've thought deeply about this, then in essence that work ought to be not for gain but work for God. That as we ponder in a fallen world, the temptation is to work for gain. But but as Christians we might work not for gain but for God. And that can be hard. That can be really hard in our world where our world is just screaming to work for gain. To not work for gain but to work for God can be really hard. To make that sacrifice, well, perhaps it's turning down the promotion because you, you don't want to work the longer hours but you want to spend that extra half hour in the morning with your family and have a meal with them and then wash up with your wife. And that, that cost, that's hard. But you know what? You might find that you actually find in that that you enjoy that as the most precious time of your day. And you find you're falling more in love with your spouse and you go to work and as you work for God, not gain, you actually find yourself loving God. And there can be joy then in your work even. To work for God and not for gain. And that can be hard in in a world where there's thorns and thistles that will frustrate your work. That can be hard. I know there's times when I I was teaching, put in a heap of work into certain lessons, or one particular lesson, where I was prepared for weeks for this one lesson. And then lo and behold, in that one lesson, when I had had the chance to sit down the students and to try and prepare and, and, and teach, Lo and behold, it's the time that, that the bell went off for a lockdown. If you're, if you're teaching, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, then a lockdown is in essence when the alarm goes off uh, and it, potentially someone has entered the property uh, that might bring harm or danger in the school. And as a teacher, all of a sudden what you have to do is get all the students on the, on the ground, under the desks, out of sight, close the door, lock the door. Um, and there ends the lesson. <laughs> And it can be so frustrating and tempting. And, and, and this was just a, you know, a, a practice. This turned out to just be a practice which tempted me even more uh, when I found that out. That why would my boss do that? Why would they ruin all my hard work? It's so easy in the frustrations when we're seeking to live and work for fruit, for gain, to get frustrated and think it's about me. Friends, I exhort you, yes, work is good and it can be frustrating. Things won't go as the way we plan and intend in this fallen world. So I exhort you, therefore, to work for God, not for gain, as the writer of Ecclesiastes exhorts us. To view work as good, but not to be naive about it, think that it will all be peachy, and therefore to walk through your workplace as one who works for God, not for gain.
This brings us to our third point. So we've done work in Eden, work in the fall, and as we progress to try and understand how does God want us to view work, we'll come to work in the gospel and ponder what the Bible and how God ought to view, uh, exhort us to view work in light of the gospel. So just as Adam's decision to choose to take God's place, just as Adam's decision to choose to take God's place had huge ramifications and affected the way that everyone who chooses to be on team Adam then works, that they reject God, that sin affects everything, that for all of us who choose to be on team Adam, just as his decision to take God's place affects our work, so does Jesus, the one who chose to take our place, the decision that he chose to take my place and where I deserved a punishment for being on Team Adam, for rejecting God, Jesus chose to take my place, to stand in my place and and receive the condemnation and the judgment that I received. Just as Jesus chose to take my place, that all those who would trust in Jesus, the one who took my place and put themselves now on team Jesus, would find that that decision that Jesus made then affects everything, that the ramifications are that everything would be affected by that. And so therefore work is affected by what Jesus did. So let's ponder a little what Jesus did. If you can turn with me to Philippians and Philippians 2, starting from verse 6. Jesus Christ, Philippians 2 verse 6, Paul writes to the Philippian church, Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus chose to take my place. Adam chose to take the place of God, which is the choice that we all on Team Adam follow. All of us, all humanity chooses to be like Adam on Team Adam, saying we will take the place of God and say that our will be done, not God's. And so God had every right to, when we commit such treason, the rightful authority ought to be able to judge us. And the judgment, the wages of sin is death, we read in Romans. But God, who is rich in mercy, rich in mercy, we read here in Philippians, sent his son who humbled himself, the almighty God, the God that can create and take out of nothing and create everything. The almighty God clothed himself in human flesh and came and walked among us to then take the place of those who chose to take the place of God that he would take our place, that he would stand and take my place on a cross. The condemnation and the judgment that I deserve for the rebellion against an almighty, holy God. Me, my sin, the almighty God, son of God in my place. This is incredible. And this this wonderful truth, Paul then goes on to say, ought to affect everything. Paul then goes on in in chapter 3, the start of chapter 3, to show that, He was a man in the workplace that had everything. He had everything. He was like the the CEO. He had everything at his feet. If he worked for gain, then he had gained everything. He had everything to, every reason to, to not care or think that he needed God. And yet, when he meets Jesus, when he encounters the one who took his place on the cross, we read in Philippians 3. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The gospel, friends, affects everything. And for, for Paul, he was able to say that this truth, this wonderful message, the good news, that for those who have said to God, I will take your place, For such foolish decisions to compete for supremacy with the Almighty One, 
For those that then realize and can place themselves on team Jesus to stand as one who represented them to take the punishment, to stand as the, with the one who then lived the perfect life that they might be forgiven completely by God for such a foolish decision. That Paul says to then know God, to know this wonderful gift of forgiveness surpasses everything. It surpasses the status that you were working for. It surpasses the gain of, of a great holiday that you're working for. It surpasses the superannuation that you're working so hard for. It surpasses the retirement package that you were working so hard for. To know God and to know him through his son who humbled himself to die on a cross for you to take your place, to know that truth, to know the wonderful God behind that truth, that, friends, surpasses anything that you might work for. The gospel will affect the way you view your work because you know God. And so you no longer have to live for for such small goals like a big house. You don't have to live for such small goals like promotion status. People might view me. You don't have to be so affected by such small goals like if only I studied a little bit more, if only I went to uni and wasn't uh, working in a job that perhaps other people in society might view and look down and, and allow those things to really bother me. Such small goals. But rather view your work through the gospel that you know God and you can live for him and walk through every day of your life working for him. You've gained so much in that. When I went to um, Nambucca, we got up at 4.30 to leave, 4.30 a.m. to leave to head to Nambucca Heads on a holiday. And uh, the plan, the intention anyway, was that we might, by leaving so early, have our three kids in the car who would just then continue to sleep and then we wouldn't have to put up with the, are we there yet? Um, or that can I go to the toilet every 20 minutes? Um, that can happen. But it really backfired, massively backfired. So by 5 o'clock, we'd barely made it to Mount White, which is about half an hour up the road, uh, before Talitha already had car sickness. And so we pulled over on the side of the F3 and she'd thrown up. And, and then we pulled over again at the Caltex, which is about an hour into the trip, further up. And it was just all not going well. <laughs> Uh, and so what could, could have been a five-hour trip just went on and on and on. And so when we started to see signs for Nambucca, it was just like, oh, this is beautiful. And those signs, those signs looked beautiful. Uh, these signs for where we were going, there's this beautiful picture, picture of the beach and the water just looks delicious. Uh, it just looks so clear and and, uh, and delightful to, to see those, those pictures was precious. But how foolish it would be, friends, how foolish it would be if we pulled over and set up camp for the rest of our days outside the billboard. If we just went, you know what? That's such a beautiful picture. And we just stopped and lived the rest of our lives, the rest of our days for that billboard, trying to enjoy that billboard. It is a beautiful billboard. It's it's great. But we've fallen so far short of what could have been so much more. To keep going and enjoy so much more in the real thing, the real gift of actually getting to Nambucca and enjoying that truly beautiful, picturesque water and beach. I think so many of us stop at the billboard, though, and we work for, for goals good goals, but to make that your be-all, end-all, that, that you would work for that, you, if you would work for your retirement, if you're working hard for, for a new house, they're not bad things, but if that is the sole purpose for you to work, then you've set up camp at the billboard. For you have been bought at a price. You are a slave to Christ. It is of surpassing worth to know Christ and therefore of surpassing worth to work for him, to work for him and for his goals that you might know not the approval of a boss but the approval of the Almighty, that you might enjoy not a promotion but adoption, that you might work, that you might gain not the great super package but you work knowing that you gain eternity 
in worship of the Almighty. The gospel affects the way we work. Knowing Christ Jesus as your Lord, placing yourself on team Jesus by trusting that he died in my place. Yes, I'm guilty that I put and pit myself against God to compete that my will matters. But God, God in his mercy and grace has made a way that I might switch teams. Scandalous, hey? That I, the sinner, can be on team Jesus, forgiven, adopted, justified, and live for him and work for him. It affects everything. Tim Keller has written a book, Every Good Endeavor. And it's a good book and I would encourage if you want to continue to wrestle with what does the Bible teach about work, it's a good book to work through. And he says on page 73, talking about Martin Luther as he grasped this wonderful truth of the gospel, how the implications for work then flow on. I'm just going to read a little bit. When he, that is Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century, when he grasps that salvation was by grace rather through any effort of our own, of his own, it made him rethink his whole understanding of Scripture, including his view of the meaning of work. Luther found two implications in particular. First, if religious works were crucial to achieving a good standing with God, then there would always be a fundamental difference between those in church ministry and everyone else. But if religious work did absolutely nothing to earn favour with God, it could no longer be seen as superior to other forms of labour. The gospel of salvation through sheer grace holds a second implication for work. While ancient monks may have sought salvation through religious works, many modern people seek a kind of salvation, self-esteem and self-worth from career and success. This leads us to seek only high-paying, high-status jobs and to worship them in perverse ways. But the gospel frees us from the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves and secure our identity through work, for we are already proven and secure. It also frees us from a condescending attitude towards less sophisticated labour and from envy over every more exalted work. All work now becomes a way to love the God who saved us freely and by extension a way to love our neighbour. So Luther could write about believers. Even their seemingly secular works are a worship of God and an obedience well-pleasing to God. He also said, Why should I not therefore freely and joyfully with all my heart and with an eager will give myself as Christ to my neighbour? Just as Christ offered himself to me, since through faith I have an abundance of all good things in Christ. Since we already have in Christ the things other people work for, salvation, self-worth, a good conscience and peace, now we may work simply to love God and our neighbour. It is a sacrifice of joy, a limitation that offers freedom. This means, ironically, that Christians who understand biblical doctrine ought to be the ones who appreciate the work of non-Christians the most. We know we are saved by grace alone and therefore we are not better fathers or mothers, better artists and business persons than those who do not believe as we do. Our gospel-trained eyes can see the world ablaze with the glory of God's work through the people he has created and called. In everything from the simplest actions such as milking a cow to the most brilliant artistic or historic achievements. How does God want us to view work? How does God want us to view work? I think a biblical understanding of work is that work is good, that we might delight in work, and we might work for the Almighty God as our boss, commissioned by Him in whatever workplace you find yourself in. That you might work to love Him, and that you might work to love your neighbour. And there'll be times that it's frustrating and there might not necessarily be fruit. But if you're working for the fruit alone, then that's hard. But if you're working for God and not the gain, then you find that you'll gain so much in loving God 
and enjoying Him, for that is of surpassing worth than anything this world has to offer. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful gift that you give us that we can know you in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that, that because of this, because of this wonderful truth, we can be impacted and affected in the way that we work. Lord, I just pray for all of us that are going to a workplace tomorrow that, that perhaps our temptation is to view work as a groundhog day, as a relentless, necessary evil or just a means to something else that we might gain something else. Lord, would you give us new insight? Would you give us new eyes that we would view work as good, that we would view you as our boss, that we can work for you, that we would offer our lives to be windows that others would look at and see through behind what is going on, that you are a God at work in and through us, and that our work would result in praise to the Almighty God. Father, help us as, as Monday rolls over to Tuesday, as Tuesday rolls over to Wednesday, and work again is tempting us to work for ourselves. May you again and again daily remind us of the gospel that we can live wholly for you, that we can work for you. In Jesus' name, amen.